Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. On Backstory today, I have two guests, both really grappling with the biggest concern of our time, the era of the Anthropocene, climate change and the effects that it has and perhaps will have on us all. It's a subject that scientists have long raised the alarm about and one that writers are finding new ways to express in their works of fiction and non-fiction and I'm not really sure which of those two are more horrifying if I'm honest. Alice Robinson's The Glad Shout takes us right into the heart of an unfolding environmental disaster. Melbourne has been hit by floods, a common feature of climate change, and this all-too-plausible novel introduces us to Isabel, her three-year-old daughter Martha and husband Sean, who have washed up in a stadium that now is a makeshift home to thousands of refugees. As Isabel struggles to cope with this precarious new life, she starts to contemplate all that has come before. Alice will join me later this hour to talk about her book and the chillingly believable setting that it takes place in. Soon, though, we'll meet the joint winner of the 2019 Nature Writing Prize, Jenny Sinclair. She shares this honour, which is awarded every two years, with Sue Kastrik. Jenny will be here to talk about her winning essay, An Orchard for My Father, very, very soon. Three, triple... Ah. You're listening to 3 Triple R. The show is Backstory and I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, the Nature Conservancy awards the Nature Writing Prize every two years. And this year, two people have shared the award. Sue Kastrik for her essay on the margins of the Good Swamp and Jenny Sinclair for an Orchard for My Father. Joining me to talk about her essay and the award and nature writing in general is Jenny Sinclair. Jenny, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. And a big congratulations as well for winning uh, this this prize for your wonderful essay, which I'm hoping we can discuss now. Thank you very much. So I, I really am very interested in, in how you've kind of launched into writing this 5,000-word uh, essay that seems to cover territory far vaster than the space it actually occupies. Uh, you're really writing about this wonderfully evocative scene, which is looking out over a plot of land, uh, you know, really contemplating things that have been grown there, but at the same time thinking about climate change and how it's affected, uh, you know, things in your lifetime and also, you know, the nature of, uh, I guess, the kind of colonisation of Australia as well. Tell me, how did you come to, to write this essay? Um, I think something like this develops over a long time and when I came to write the Nature Essay, I wanted to write about climate change and I wanted to write about our relationship to the natural world around us but I found it it wasn't easy to get a a hold on that until I started to think about myself and the places that I really love and that's something you'll often find with nature writing is that the more particular and specific the writer is and the more I guess obsessed with the the place they're talking about um, the better they bring out those wider themes. Um, When you hit people with statistics about climate change it all becomes a bit abstract but if you talk about 
um, as I did in the essay, a particular person's lifetime and how much the temperature has gone up every year over that lifetime. Or you talk about a particular piece of land and how you used to be able to grow certain plants there but you can't anymore, the way that um, some farmers, say, in northern Victoria are ripping out entire crops that aren't viable anymore. Um, it really brings home that this is you know, a real thing. It's easy to say these are just numbers until you say, no, right here, this is happening to me. Reading through your essay and also um, I'm, I'm going to have another guest on later who uh, has written a novel that's uh, preoccupied with themes around climate change as well. It really occurred to me that writers do actually serve a very important purpose uh, and one that you've just touched on in really expressing what climate change means because you can ground it in terms that people genuinely understand. And you have done this really quite achingly beautifully in this tale because there is so much um, so much beauty that you describe in the nature um, that you're observing but also the kind of, you know, impending, I guess, sense of that um, encroaching, you know, changes in climate that are, they're going to lead to some 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 violent action in nature. Um, there's a wonderful moment as well where you sort of kind of you know you you pen in this idea of the Anthropocene as something that you somehow feel responsible for uh, in a way that you know it's happened from the year of your birth. Um, I just think that that's a really beautiful framing of it. Yeah, well, the Anthropocene, um, there, are, there are different ideas about this. Some people date it back to around the start of the Industrial Revolution, but there is an argument that. Uh, kind of took off in the mid-60s as far as you know, certain indicators, especially the temperature rises, went. And um, I did kind of notice this every time I, I read a piece about um, the changes, that it was kind of... Um, I was born in 1966, so it'd be 1968 or 1964... And I was kind of like, this is all happening really in my lifetime and my lifetime is such a short period of time compared to, you know, the scope of the earth and deep time. Um... And that idea that I'm personally responsible for it, I mean, of course, I'm not. I'm only one person. But we are personally responsible for it. And everybody who's over the age of 18 years old now is making their own decisions about what they've done. And I guess um, I guess this isn't in the essay, but I was aware vaguely of climate change you know, 25 years ago that there was this idea that we shouldn't be doing that some of the things that we're doing. And I probably didn't do as much as I should have done and people still aren't doing as much as they should do. So um, that was one of the reasons I guess I made it so personal was to kind of examine um, how it relates to me as an individual because that's one of the other things with climate change is we don't... It's easy to say this: what I do as an individual isn't going to make a difference. Um, so just to relate it to one individual's life, which happened to be me, I think can maybe try to move that mindset a little bit. Yeah, but you, you do kind of really personalise this in the sense that, um, you know, that you are kind of looking at these small actions that people can take and uh, and that, you know, you have taken in, in, I guess, growing an orchard or contemplating what, what these kinds of, um, you know, what these kinds of actions can mean. There's a wonderful quote right at the beginning uh, where you talk about uh, your father, who's now 82, yeah. uh, posting a, a quote on Facebook saying, a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in, which is something I don't mm. think many of our current cropper politicians have really contemplated uh, to any great extent, uh, something that you, obviously your father has started to. You then sort of frame yeah. that as your father's not particularly a greenie, I guess, or someone who's really, you know, spent much of his life considering these things. But, you know, in the context of trees and of, you know, this idea of like, you know, we have to consider um, that we have it, we, we have 
um, an effect on the future in our actions now. And using that metaphor of nature throughout is kind of a really wonderful way to ground this piece. Yeah, thanks. I think the interesting thing about uh, my dad and people like him, I mean, if you read the letters pages, you do get people who say, I'm 92 and I've seen the changes happen. Um, I guess there's two things there. One is older people have actually seen the changes, whereas if you're very young, you, your baseline is the last 10, 15 years. So you don't remember what people like my dad remembers, the wetter um, springs in Melbourne. You don't remember um, times when there wasn't quite so much drought around. So you can say, well, this is how life is and we can easily assume that the baseline is what we are on now. Um, I also, I guess, wanted to make it clear that people like the politicians who say this isn't an issue, we have to worry about jobs and not the climate, are... not the standard thing for older people. The um, the protests where the school children um, went on strike, and my kid was one of those kids who went on strike, um, was were, were criticised by the politicians who who were like, you really shouldn't be saying this, you shouldn't be political. And I wanted to kind of show that those kind of concerns go right across the generations, and that you don't have to be any particular age to care about what's going to happen to the planet in the future. And often people like my dad, they're concerned about their great grandchildren, which my um, parents have. And what comes on beyond them? People aren't always just being selfish, I guess, is what I was trying to say. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm joined today by Jenny St. Clair, who's a joint winner of this year's, uh, well, the 2019 Nature Writing Prize. It only happens once every two years, uh, rather slow-growing, much like uh, the wonderful scenery that it describes. Uh, Jenny... You know, there are so many wonderful movements in this piece, but I do want to shift for a second to discuss the actual writing in here because it is an incredibly moving piece of writing in just its its beautiful descriptions of nature uh, and the way you contemplate it uh, and, and how you use that and how you let it bubble up uh, into these other ideas about, you know, colonialism, ideas about, you know, environmental, um, impending environmental disaster, but also about just being in it uh in and of itself Mm. i would love you to read a little piece um just to give a sense of some of the writing uh that really has very deservedly won you this prize sure okay and and just for a little context the the piece is set around um a small piece of land up near castlemaine um so fire is a constant threat a sleeping dragon five years ago it came it was late december not bushfire season yet, or it wouldn't have been 50 years ago. But there it was, racing across the neighbour's unmown paddock. I was in the city at the time, and while the flames surrounded my little block on three sides, I hardly registered the text messages from the power company about the interruption to supply. That's always happening. It was the next morning when other neighbours rushed to tell me that my place was still standing, that that I understood there'd been a fire. The day after that, when I arrived to check the damage, the air still stank. The house reeked of wet ash. I have a photograph of a helicopter water-bombing my tin roof to quell the sparks. And the valley was black and grey and the sepia of desiccated foliage. Inside my fence line, most of the ground was black, punctuated by whitish stubs of burnt tussock grass. The line of the fire could be clearly seen. It stopped, or was stopped, halfway through the orchard and at the tin fence around the veggie garden. My green moat and the country fire authority had saved my house. A year later, the native trees had regenerated nicely. The river redgum in particular seemed to have enjoyed the experience. Not so much the fruit trees, of course. I sighed and replanted. 
Now a few charred fence fence posts and an area of baked ground that favours thistles over grass are the only physical traces of the fire. It's it's kind of beautiful and also uh, you know obviously has that that deep sense of dread that that comes with this idea of fire, both its destructive capacity and its necessity um, in regenerating the Australian landscape. Talk to me a little bit about how you've approached writing nature in this piece, because there's a really long and proud history of nature writing that I'm sure you've drawn on a little in in terms of how you've you've kind of placed your own writing. Yeah, absolutely. And this um this. Pro- is now in its um, fifth iteration, so there's been it's been going for ten years. Um, the winner two years ago was Sophie Cunningham for a um, a piece about um, river red gums, and I think it was the two years before that was Nick Gadd, who's a um, novelist from the western suburbs of Melbourne. And I love reading those people because of their um, their focus on the specific and their ability to work in um, a lot of facts and history to their descriptions of place. So nature writing, it's a kind of a a compound beast because it can be about really wild places and I think that's where a lot of nature writing was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, But it can also just be about place and our relationship to the natural features of a place. So I guess the other winner of the essay this um, the essay prize this year um, with Sue Krastrick, whose essay is set in Marrickville in Sydney and is all about the swamp that isn't there anymore. It's about the water underneath Marrickville and how that influenced the history of Marrickville and how it keeps on coming back to um, curse the place, I guess. Um, so I, I read as much nature writing as I can. I really like the people who are very idiosyncratic. There's a little-known guy from England called Nick Papadimitriou who basically wanders around London picking up old bits and pieces and um, making notes on them and then writes about it. He's kind of a literary tramp. Um, um, but the, the way I approached this one was to mix as much information as I could. So there's a lot of stuff in there about about climate change and statistics from the Bureau of Meteorology, that kind of thing, with my 15 years in that place um, and my kind of... So I just kind of sat and thought, what do I know best about this place? What really strikes me? And tried to get that across, if you like. Yeah, like contemplating the, the girth of a 500-year-old tree and thinking about those who came before colonialism, yeah. um, I guess, obliterated or changed the landscape so dramatically, um, you know, juxtaposing this sort of newly grown European orchard and its mm. dis- and its kind of perpetual <laughs> destruction yeah. um, again against these, these ancient trees that have weathered so much and and yet may be, uh, you know, devastated by our vicious Anthropocene. Um, you also do something quite beautiful at the end, which is, of course, something that, um, you know, to be to recast things in new words is something a writer should always be considering. And and you take the um, the ideas of the Jawarang language, um, which is the language of the original people of the place um, that you're contemplating, and you look at the features, um, you know, Mount Misery that, that had a different name that meant something far different, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, to take away the perspective that was forced upon it by one group um, to contemplate how someone else looked at it. Um, is to sort of relook at the landscape. I'd love mm. you to talk a little bit about this. Yeah, I think the the way we talk about places is really important, and the names of places are important. And there is that cliche of um, the Australian so-called explorers naming things. You know, Mount Mis- Misery, Mount Disappointment. Those names are extremely transitory. Um, there's a writer called Paul Carter who's written about this a bit. Um, those names are really 
about one person's experience in that time the same way the name Ayers Rock was a very brief nod to um, an English lord. Um, the names that the Indigenous people gave places were based on their experience of those places. And as far as we have those names, um, and of course the Jaja Wronga um, engaged in their own language reclamation project up around Castlemaine and Bendigo, um, tell us a lot about what it is to be in those places as an Indigenous person. And I, I think can give us some really useful clues about the ways we could come to terms with the land as well. I mean, without kind of appropriating their culture to understand, say, that um, Mount Franklin between Dalesford and Castlemaine is um, named more or less, it's hard to get it exactly right, but more or less the emu's nest. Um, and it does look like it when you see it. And that reminds you there were emus around there until um, colonisation. You wouldn't think that now. It's all kangaroos and kangaroos and more kangaroos. So it was really... Um, it was really a nice experience to kind of delve a little bit into the way the people who had been there for eons before um, my ancestors arrived talked and um, discussed that area. And I, I love the sound of those words as well. Um, and it's a, the, yeah. it's a really interesting thing to think about the erasure of landscape also being matched by the erasure of language that described it. Yeah. Um, those two things happen, happening concurrently are just a, of this magnitude that's impossible to, to really get your head around. Yeah. But in a way is, is the way that we can contemplate as well what's about to come. I think it's a, an incredibly important juxtaposition of those two concepts as well. Um, Jenny, yeah, thank I, you. I think this is such a, a beautiful um, piece, uh, as is Suka Streaks on the Margins of the Good Swamp. Uh, where can people read them if they'd like to get their hands on them? Um, okay, so both the essays have been published online by Griffith Review. Um, so you just kind of Google Griffith Review 2019 Nature Writing Prize or Sue's name or my name, and um, they should come up pretty quickly. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thanks. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thanks so much, Mel. That was Jenny Sinclair, uh, the co-winner with Sue Kestrick um, of the 2019 Nature Writing Prize. I highly recommend uh, having a read of both Jenny and Sue's wonderful essays. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Triple R. The show is Backstory and I'm Mel Cranenberg. Alice Robertson's The Glad Shout pulls the reader into the heart of an unfolding disaster. Melbourne and perhaps the entire eastern seaboard has been hit by a disastrous flood, leaving thousands stranded seeking shelter in a makeshift tent village set up in a sports stadium. Here we meet Isabel, her three-year-old daughter Martha and her do-gooder and increasingly absentee husband Sean as they grapple with their new reality as climate refugees. Isabel increasingly is haunting, haunted by the past as she deals with her ever more dire present and an increasingly uncertain future. Joining me to talk about her really chillingly believable novel is Alice Robertson. Alice, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. I am really uh, quite obsessed with this book right now because <laughs> it does kind of feel very, very real. Reading it, I thought this is something that 
I can very much imagine happening, not in some even, you know, not, not too distant future. I feel like this is something that could happen now. Is that kind of, the, that feeling of immediacy, is that sort of something you really wanted to achieve with this novel? Yeah, I think it's probably something I wanted to achieve. I'm really... Um alarmed that so many people do find it to be so plausible and particularly so immediate that you know none of us want to believe that that future is possible or that it could happen here or that it could happen in any time soon and I suppose I thought maybe best case scenario would impact people but I never wanted it to feel like it could happen here because I don't want that future for any of us. Yeah, I think that this is one of the curses of of writing a good book is that actually people do get quite kind of sucked in. I want to talk about the craft uh, of this book because I think you've managed to achieve something which, uh, which writers, you know, really hope to achieve and of course as readers it's something that we we always enjoy which is a book that has quite a compelling narrative uh almost immediately but but very satisfying characters as well Uh, I really want to talk about how you've done this because like you know a lot of good plot driven fiction we are smack in the middle of the disaster when this book opens we're in the heart of you know a, a kind of tent village people who've been dislodged from their lives and we meet uh isabel and you know and are immediately kind of sucked into her life and her predicament talk a bit about uh this setup of this book and how you wrote it because you know i sort of feel as though there's a lot going on here and and that's taken a lot of writing to get into (laughs) thank you yes it felt like a long process at the time um There's a few things going on. One of them is that I think um, because with both of the novels that I've written, I've started with the theme or the the issue first, which is actually a terrible way to write a novel because you have the thing that you want to talk about but no story. Um, It's much better and easier potentially to start with the characters, but you work with what you've got. And so I I was still stuck on climate change. The first novel was also about climate change and I, I obviously still had more to say about it. The first novel finished in around 2016 or 18 Um, and I wanted to write something a little bit further into the future but not much because I'm really interested in this moment that we're in now in Australia where we still have the potential to change the future by taking action of some kind ecologically speaking but I fear that we won't and so that question of you know what did we do what could we have done and also exploring the relationships between the past the present and the future you know how the past impacts on the future um, on all levels not just environmentally but personally as well for the characters you know what do we carry with us through our lives what can we let go of what do we carry with us and we don't even realize that we're doing it what do we inherit all those kinds of questions um, so I had this issue that I needed to talk about and I I guess I, sort of um, part of what I was thinking about as I was structuring the novel was this idea that, uh, you know, a publisher will only read the first... Well, they ask for the first three chapters, usually. I did have a contract already, but I, I had an underlying sense of anxiety that somehow it wouldn't be published anyway. And so, which is kind of, you know, a galvanising force when you have an unaccountable anxiety that you're going to be rejected, even though you've already got a contract that propels you to do the work. And so, for me, that was useful. But I thought I better make at least the first three chapters really good, you know, gripping in some way. So I had that kind of idea. Um, and I, I, you know, you learn a lot from, 
what com- compels you as a reader and I just thought you know action I, I'm a literary writer I, I come kind of vaguely from a background of poetry or thinking about poetic writing um, and th- that can conspire against a really gripping plot and so I really wanted to work with my ability on the line to create prose that I you know that tends towards the more lyrical but also have a story that compels people because those kinds of lyrical novels can sometimes be um underestimated or turned away from because they're not they're quiet I suppose people need to do a little bit of work to get under the skin of them yeah you have to sort of sit with that Um, but I do kind of you know I was really thinking quite a lot about uh, this book and and how it works and why it works and and there are a number of, of different things going on here I think if it was purely just driven along by this sweeping plot uh, we would be lost very quickly mm. it's the gripping nature of actually being in the minds of the you know of the people and then you know going back over their realities or the previous realities that have been swept away by this flood. Um, it made me think of that, you know, Elaine de Botton, kind of the news, um, you know, type kind of pondering that it's really difficult for us to empathise with mm. those who've experienced disaster because we don't know what their everyday looks like. We yes. only hear about uh, their lives, their cities, their countries when some awful thing happens. So the real masterful element of, I guess, um, you know, or the kind of place I guess writers really have in in getting empathy um, or to get understanding for uh, big disasters is in you know getting us into the minds of people uh, and you've really done that here I feel as though in some ways this is a book as much about uh, you know climate disaster or looming climate disaster as it is about you know our lack of empathy for asylum seekers as a country um, yes. because we don't really get that who they are as people um, or that they are us you know Mm. Uh, and that's that's really what you've done here. So I kind of want to talk a little bit, bit about the characters that you have because they are very definitely the heart of this. Um, as with all great writing about, um, you know, any kind of apocalypse, we really are focusing on our connection with individual characters. Um, and here we have Isabel who very much is still grappling um with she's grappling with motherhood uh she has a three-year-old and and she's kind of having her mind is straying over um how you know she's not really getting much support from her husband so she's in the middle of this disaster where he is you know objectively going and legitimately helping others um but from her perspective it's just her being abandoned to look after a kid by herself um and this kind of really has her unpeel the layers of her own childhood and recasting what, you know, her seemingly difficult relationship with her mother and her mother's difficult relationship with her mother. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because it's, mm. it's a wonderful, um, you know, little kind of a, sort of, I guess, tangent that, that we get drawn into while we're in the middle of this, you know, incredibly awful thing that's going on. I think, yeah, talk a little bit about the characters, but before I get into that, the the thing about the kind of the structure of the novel is that you're in the disaster and in alternating chapters you go flashback through different stages of Isabel's life from her earliest memory to basically the storm that brings her to the stadium. And uh, I felt like that when I happened upon that that structure, it was necessary because the the kind of everydayness of her past life 
um, makes the the kind of potentially implausible disaster scenario seem really possible, I think. And so that, you know, there has to be the known and the unknown sitting alongside each other. But I was also interested in this intergenerational um, theme of motherhood and who these women were, because it's, I think it is true that when you, if you have children, um, you do start to reconsider the parenting that you've received in different terms. And that's the case not only for Isabel and her mother, but also for her mother, Luna, and the grandmother, Karen, who have all um, approached motherhood in very different ways. The grandmother's fairly bohemian, she's a playwright, and she's potentially a little bit... um irresponsible in her role as a parent but she's a lot of fun the mother is um, much more uptight she's a career person she's into real estate and she creates this really beautiful home that's almost like a museum that the children aren't allowed to mess up Um, and then there's Isabel who's just floundering uh, in the wake of her own set of complications and I think you know all of these women the thing that I realized that between writing the first novel and this novel The Glad Shout I had two children of my own so my perception of the world and of women and mothers really shifted fast and dramatically um you you kind of uh you big it's like all your nerve endings are exposed to the air when you have these babies you become very vulnerable but also I felt for myself anyway that my heart got bigger it's it's exposed it's expanded and um you feel so compassionate towards all these women who've strived and failed before you and who are doing it around you because what happens is that you enter a world where you're it's it's all staffed by women when you have little kids in that preschool time you go to the park you're in people's homes you're in domestic spaces or in cafes with other women because all the men are at work so in a way, the dynamic between Sean and Isabel in the stadium where he is a good man doing his best, doing what he thinks he needs to do, which is to save other people, to be in that almost political echelon of the action, organising things and, and making sure everyone has enough to eat and that they've got somewhere to sleep. And Isabel experiences that, rightly or wrongly, as in a kind of abandonment. She wants them to be together as a unit, but... And I think that those dynamics do happen even in our um, contemporary world between couples too, where one person's working outside the home and one person's sequestered in the home and both of those roles are functioning to support the family, but it's very hard to watch that person walk away every day, even though you know it's for your own benefit. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Alice Robinson about her latest novel, which is uh, The Glad Shout. It's a uh, post-apocalyptic, I guess. I don't even know if I can call it post-apocalyptic. It's Melbourne in the grip <laughs> of a disaster. That is a little bit too frighteningly real. Um, I do want to talk about, you know, how you've written the kind of environment of this book. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion of desalinated water um you know really you've wound in these um elements that are very kind of of now with these slightly futuristic elements that just throw you a little bit off kilter because it is a world that is appreciably our own with just small changes can you talk to me a little bit about the decisions that you made with that um in the context of this book yeah, I think um, there were sort of three timelines by the end. That One of them was to do with the characters in their lives, the main events, people um, being born and dying. One was about the environmental decline of the land and the city that, that Isabel is living in. And the other one was about the political 
um, the series of political decisions or catastrophes that were happening. And all of these three things are kind of interwoven. But I felt like the, the novel in my mind is set in the pretty near future. It's about 30 years in the future. And actually when I calculated Isabel's date of birth for the timeline, um, she was born in around, in my mind anyway, around 2012, which is actually when my child was born. So that was pretty, it was accidental, but it was really chilling to think I'm actually conjuring some world that my child or children will inhabit in the future and I desperately don't want that to be the case but it's possible um, and so you know this is a pretty swift decline potentially and I felt like to make that believable like it wasn't like it's a you know Mad Max style environment where you know there's no structures in place but for those slow environmental collapses to make sense, there had to be some kind of political collapse as well. So the failure of the government or governments to rise to, the, to meet the challenges of um, the problems that are being faced by the citizens. So things become increasingly localised in this story to the point that they're almost living within, you know, a few blocks of their house. Um, the state, some of the uh, Western Australia has seceded, so taking all their money with them. Um, you know, and, uh, Tasmania has military. That's right. <laughs> is off doing its own. It's closed borders because it's still pretty habitable. It's got a small population, um, you know, high rainfall compared to the mainland, and it's considered a safe haven, although um, it would be up to readers to decide how safe it might be if you actually arrived on the shores. Yeah. I did actually th- feel kind of chilled when I when that first mention of Tasmania being militarised happened because I thought, I'd, I don't know, is this mm. kind of roving into hand? Handmaiden's, handmaid's Tale kind of um, territory, it sort of feels like how do you react to a disaster like that? I guess questions like that are sort of raised uh, some subtly and less subtly in this book about where politics then goes uh, once a disaster like this has happened. Obviously a breakdown has already occurred but, you know, the extremes um, tend to lead to the extremes and, and I'm sort of interested because you are in a sense kind of unpacking... Um, social norms um, and you know there is certainly in terms of gender roles this return to a conservative um, breakdown in in terms of how the roles work uh, based on you know I guess childcare needs and, and things like that mm. and do you sort of um, did you kind of really contemplate that or is that just something organic that grew up of, of the experiences that you you generated in this book maybe it's not so much that there's a return but that you know it's even alarming to think in 2019 that most families or many families are still set up in that conservative traditional way, partly because the structures of our culture and our society um, make it easier for women to stay home or make it harder for men to stay home, depending on your view. You know, most of the people that I've encountered since becoming a parent um, are in that position if they're in a partnered relationship. And so perhaps we could, in, in Isabel's scenario, it isn't that things have regressed but just that they haven't changed quickly enough and she's to her dismay I think like many women finds herself in a position she never intended uh, in some ways her she has even less freedoms than say me and my cohort because um, you know by then the university systems have collapsed and there's no real chance for higher education she's an autodidact so she's just taught herself through the books that she's inherited from her grandmother um, so she hasn't, you know, she never really has a proper career or something like that to forego when she has the child. But she's still so dismayed by the, circum- the circumstance of being a parent to a young child and being closed off from the world. 
um, even more than she already was. I have to say, and and this is you know maybe a thought that we can really end on, that the you know the real new crop I guess of, of writers that are covering the environment tend to really focus on humanism um, more than anything else. That you know here we are in the midst of disaster, um, but you know really the focus is on people you know mm. finding ways of holding on to their humanity. I do really I do want to talk about that because I guess you know when great disasters have happened that's usually the first thing to get thrown out is this notion of you know uh, an idea of thinking about more than just yourself um, or an idea of what what it is to be human Mm. um, which really is at the core of this book I would say in many books of, of a similar nature although yours is particularly kind of you know it's a it's a book that's quite well written so we're obviously you know able to engage with it more I feel like there's sort of two choices you can I mean the 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 context of the story is already quite bleak and then to layer on top of that a scenario in which it's every man for himself which eventually um it sort of is for Isabel because she decides or she chooses or she innately privileges Matilda's survival over the survival of anyone else that's how she sees her role as a mother um but I think you know there is something potentially you know when disaster happens when there's fire and flood in Australia people do talk about neighbours coming together and supporting each other like perhaps that's the first instance in which neighbours actually meet when something goes wrong and so amid you know in order to make this book work and to be readable I sort of thought early on you know this has to be a scenario in which tough decisions are made but ultimately although the world is a really pretty hard place the, the, the people are going to be essentially trying to still strive to be the best selves and um, maybe part of that is that the women are at the heart of the story they're they're quietly heroic they're doing what they have to do but um, it isn't a narrative in which there's a kind of you know they're fighting for their lives in the way that a kind of potentially male-centric story um, might unfold it's a different kind of heroism and caring for each other Well, Alice Robertson, thank you for this book and for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you so much. That was Alice Robinson, who is the author of The Glad Shout. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Jenny Sinclair, who was the, the joint winner of uh, this year's uh, 2019's um, Nature Writing Prize uh, and for joining me on Backstory as well. Three triple R. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.